The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Great, Father. It's well, great to see you. Yes. Blessed uh, second week of Lent to you. Well, so, thank you. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait to the same. Uh, <laughs> we're uh, already in the vigil of... Uh, Viste of St. Gabriel, the Sorrowful Mother, tomorrow, too. That's right. That's right. Oh, wonderful. Very good. Uh, Father, any prayer requests tonight? <clears throat> many, many, too many to mention, of course. So I ask everyone to pray for all the intentions committed to your priests, and many of them. And we refer them to our Blessed Lady. You know, she keeps them her an immaculate heart. She doesn't forget anyone. Um, <clears throat> but I, I do ask you to continue your prayers, please, for... Well, my, my nephew, young William Jenkins, uh, namesake, uh, he's still suffering quite a bit uh, after the surgery, and uh, he was very sick. So he, he's, it's going to take him a while to recover. Uh, fortunately, he's not in the great pain that he was. Um, but I do ask your prayers for him, and also continue prayers for Anna, Anna Regigopal. She's still got a long road to recovery, too, because of respiratory illness. So please keep her in your prayers, and uh, please keep Terry Wilt in prayers. He just got home from the hospital, but they appeared she had a heart uh, blockage, in fact. Turned out miraculously, it actually wasn't, but she's still got shingles and kind of a tough road ahead, ahead of her now, too. And, uh, of course, young Goss is still in need in prayers, newborn, newborn baby. And uh, there are quite a few, Cliff Hogan and... Uh, Joe Percher and uh, Donna King and so many, many dear souls we know for whom we're praying. And uh, of course, Paul Riley and his family. Please, please keep Paul in your prayer. He's he's making progress, and uh, but it's the it really is the result of prayer. And uh, again, I could go on naming hundreds of good people who are in my mind right now. Uh, and in my heart, I, I have them at the altar with me, asking God to have mercy on them. And I ask you to have mercy also and pray for them. Right. Always pray for our country, too. Our country is desperately in need, in need of prayers right now. Every day, I've asked people to pray uh, nine times the Our Father and nine times the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel every day as a kind of standing novena, daily novena for our country. I know people generally use the, the rosary, and so they, they often pray ten Our Fathers and St. Michael the Archangel, but they are praying 
for our country, and I know that will have a that will have a beneficial effect, and hopefully holding back some of the evil that threatens. Um, but uh, also, um, you know, Tom. Uh, in, ad in addition to this, we probably should mention again the online courses, right? Um, I don't have the uh, the list, but a lot of people have gotten back to us since last week and uh, expressed not only an interest, but an actual intention to take the online Latin courses offered mm -hmm. by our own expert Latinist, okay, who actually studied in Rome under uh, one of the premier Latinists alive. And um, so uh, uh, those who have taken the course before tell me it's really a good course. And uh, the intention is to make it available for homeschool students, um, but also uh, a lot of adults have expressed an interest and want to sign on. I think that the goal is not only to give them a basic knowledge of the Latin, but actually to bring them to the point where they can listen to the Latin of the Mass as it's being pronounced at the altar and actually understand what's being said. So that's um, a great goal. Read the reading of the, uh, listen to the reading of the Epistle and Gospel and actually understand the language that the, that the priest is speaking at the altar. So I'd encourage people to, to sign up. It'll uh, be better for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if anyone is interested in that, they can just send us an email and let us know, mm -hmm. and we'll uh, get the correct information to them. So they just send an email to What Catholics Believe mm -hmm. and tell them they're interested mm -hmm. in the online course, yeah. and we'll... We'll have the instructor contact them, and we okay. can work out the details from there. Okay, so. excellent. Yeah. Excellent, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, very good. Thank you, Father. Well, uh, okay, we have... Um, Lots of viewer questions tonight, Father. I think some some great questions. So, try and get through as many of these as we can. Um, we have some even from last week. Uh, so, first one I have here, Father. I think a great question concerning the uh, spiritual life. One of our viewers uh, asks the question: If if one in encounters crosses in the spiritual life, should he view them as a punishment from God for his sins, or should he view them as a sign that? Uh, perhaps God is pleased with him and desires to make him more holy by means of suffering. How should he view his crosses he receives? Well, uh, I understand from what the question, how the question reads, it has to do with crosses in the spiritual life. Is what so not just in life in general. For example, if one encounters illness or injury or financial loss, right? Uh, those are not specifically... Uh, hardships in the spiritual life. They affect the spiritual life, certainly. Uh, but I gather what the individual is asking about. Uh, crosses in the spiritual life, maybe darkness, um, a lack of devotion, a sense of lack, kind of aridity, spiritual aridity, yeah. things like that. Right? Yeah. Uh, so that kind of narrows it down quite a bit. And, um, you know, one, one might say in general um, that it, um, it's both, in that it, it is actually punishment, you might say, but it's also a spur to progress as well, an opportunity to progress. And I say the reason why it's both is because, I mean, we know from uh, divine revelation that all suffering comes from sin. It is all the result of sin. So to that extent, uh, and, you know, to some extent, all suffering is uh, the result of sin and is a form of expiation of sin or an opportunity to expiate sin. So we might say that, yes, in general, all suffering is inflicted on us because of our sins, 
So in that sense, we might say that we are being punished for our sins by whatever suffering we have, including our, our spiritual afflictions too, right? But, uh, but also because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord telling us, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross every day and follow me. Well, our Lord is talking about patience and our Lord is talking about the cross and, and suffering. Now we can take those very sufferings that have really come into the world because of our sins and we can actually make them very profitable as a means of grace because we can actually uh, basically transform all of those hardships and all that adversity into somebody's splinters, as it were, of the cross of Christ. And as long as we are willing to cast our cares upon him, as it were, and all of our afflictions and cast them there, and they become part of our Lord's own cross, carried out of love for him, then they can be a source of great spiritual riches and, uh, and actually raise us up, you know. Uh, that's why when you study the spiritual life, uh, you know, one of the great masters of the spiritual life was Father Gregor Lagrange, uh, Father Reginald Gregor Lagrange, a Dominican, who actually lectured at the, uh, the Angelicum in Rome. And uh, he himself is a master of it because he has availed himself of so many of the great spiritual writers of the church's history. And you might say he's a, he's a great compiler of their, of their teaching. And uh, so he tells us about the three ages of the spiritual life, classic standard understanding, Catholic understanding of the spiritual life, that every soul uh, comes into the world with original sin, except that of our Blessed Lady and our Blessed Lord, of course. But uh, because we come into the world sinners, we need to be baptized in the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. And um, we need to be justified and uh, then given grace, sanctifying grace and a sharing in the life of God and become a child of God through the sacrament. That is the power of Christ working in the soul already. And even as a tiny child, even as a newborn, uh, we have that power. But um, so any soul that wants to make progress in the spiritual life, though, has to be ready to fight the battle. It's a church militant, right? The militancy in the church spiritual life means there is going to be adversity, which means there's going to be suffering in one way or another, right? So it's part of progress in the spiritual life. Just the very science of the spiritual life presupposes that this is there and it's a means of, of progress. So the first step in the spiritual life consists of making the decision to live one's life in the state of grace, not in the state of mortal sin. And so that is going to wind up being a battle against one's own passions and one's own weaknesses. And, and um, again, I mean, there, there's going to be spiritual, it's kind of a spiritual warfare, but a spiritual warfare against uh, one's own fallen nature. And, um, and there, there's a certain amount of suffering and self-denial and mortification that, that is necessary for a person to be able to do that, to actually live his life in the state of, state of grace rather than in the state of mortal sin. Uh, two great uh, passions that a person has to deal with in order to do that, perhaps the greatest obstacles are the, the passion of anger 
a passion of lust. And one has to maintain control of his, of his anger and uh, learn to practice patience. And uh, that doesn't mean a person doesn't experience anger or feel angry. It means that he has cultivated the self-control by the grace of God that he can control the anger. And uh, he does not uh, give into it. In other words, if he, if he feels angry, and he, on the other hand, knows God's will that he wants, God wants him to be patient, he has a choice to make, and so he chooses God's will to exercise patience rather than to um, entertain and, and succumb to his anger. Right? Uh, it's a choice he makes, but as he does it, he grows spiritually, and it's a bit of a struggle, as those of us who have choleric temperaments, knows all, know all too well, right? But also uh, purity. I mean, when someone starts a spiritual life, they want to stay in the state of grace and not sin, commit mortal sin. They're going to have to do that battle with uh, the temptations to impurity and thought, word, and deed. And uh, again, that's going to be a battle, a real battle against their own fallen human nature. And um, so that they can cultivate the virtue of purity. And uh, having the virtue of purity doesn't mean they're never tempted. The point is that they, they are tempted, and they have the virtue, the strength necessarily, to crush the temptation, refuse to submit to it, refuse to give into it, refuse to yield to it or approve it in any way. And um, rather than offend God by sinning, they're, they're actually glorifying God by choosing His will over their passion. Uh, of lust. And so this is the battle in the very first, you know, the, the first years of the, of the spiritual life that a person is living, determined to stay in the state of grace, not to live in the state of mortal sin. If one perseveres in that, then one will go through the uh, dark, dark night of the, of the, uh, of the senses. And um, that dark night of the senses is actually a, a kind of a transition as a period of transition to the illuminative way. And uh, again, there are battles to be fought in the illuminative way too, in order to make progress. But uh, even the, you know, the, the using the expression dark night of the senses, well, dark night indicates again a certain, a certain struggle, you know, a certain struggle which is going to be hard for someone like that, a bit of a spiritual hardship. But again, it's necessary to make progress. We have to go through that. We have to be purified in our intentions, and um, what, what is happening uh, throughout this whole process, by the way, is a, a, a gradual purification of the highest of the virtues, okay? We have to purify the virtues of our faith and our hope and our love for God. And, and the ultimate, of course, is to come through the dark night of the Spirit, again, a transition from the illuminative way to the unitive way, the purpose of which is to purify, especially our love for God, of all tang entanglements. You know, to say that one loves God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength, which is the ultimate objective for every single soul that God creates, that we love God with all the power of loving we have. It doesn't mean we don't love anything else, quite the contrary, but we love everyone else, our neighbor, because of our love for God 
And our, it's almost as though our love for our neighbor, our fellow man, is included in our love for God. And it's sanctified, therefore. It's not as though we love them uh, yeah, sort of as an, as an addendum, as an add-on to our love for God, because to the extent that we love something for its own sake and not for God's sake, that, that love can be an obstacle and even a threat. And we make a choice, you know, we'll wish to love more. And uh, God says, our Lord Jesus Christ tells it, the first grace commandment to love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, your whole will. And you'd think that would pretty much take all your love. But then our Lord says, the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the first great commandment, to love God with all of your powers of loving, does not take away your power of loving others. But it's just that it's, uh, it's a secondary love in, uh, in the context of the primary love, which is the love of God. And then you really begin to love others through your love for God. And um, through, as it were, Christ's love for them. You can see that too. So anyway, in all of this, um, you have um, love basically being our great vocation. And uh, vocation is a life of service. And a life of service is necessarily a life of sacrifice. And there is going to be suffering. But it can be sanctifying. Mm -hmm. As long as it is motivated. And to the extent that it is motivated by a love for God. It seems then, Father, that that any of these crosses or sufferings that we're faced with, that they're uh, they're a great means that we have for progress in the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. um, they actually seem, in, in uh, some sense, at least, to be a, a great blessing from God. Why, why then is it uh, it's so easy, so natural for us to become kind of discouraged and melancholic when we uh, when we're faced with these crosses and, and sufferings? It seems to be like our natural reaction is just a um, I don't know, kind of fight against them and, and maybe become upset or discouraged by the fact that we're facing Well, that's true. I mean, there seem to be very few who press on and actually go through to the ultimate outcome, right? Very few. I mean, how many people on earth have ever come to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and will? Um, have there been some? Yes. Our Blessed Mother, obviously, right? Uh, some talk about St. Joseph and perhaps St. John the Baptist, too, you know. Um, it, is, it was said by her confessor that he didn't believe that St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, ever committed a mortal sin in her entire life. Um, but um, so few seem to, seem to press on. As a matter of fact, it seems that there are very few who actually press on all the way through even the first level and actually succeed in living their life, you might say, SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, in the state of grace. That they're just struggling to stay in the state of grace for days or maybe weeks at a time before they fall back into mortal sin again. Whereas the outcome, the objective of the, of the, uh, you know, the, way, the purgative way, the purgative way is what they call the first way. The first level where you're trying to escape from the grip of mortal sin and live habitually in the state of grace. As they say, the next level is the limited way. The third level is the unitive way. 
when your will is united with God's will so, so perfectly. <laughs> but anyways, there are so few who seem to make it through the purgative way. They may spend their entire life struggling just to hang on, to stay in the purgative way, you know, to fight mortal sin and to, to get back into the state of grace again. Why don't they? Why do so many even give up on that? Well, it is hard. And um, they might have this false idea that because they are trying to serve God and be faithful now, because they, they want to stay in the state of grace, that it should become easy, that God should make it easier for them. That, uh, you know, they, the broad way and, you know, should, should open up before them, smooth, um, no thorns, right? No rain, no hail, no thunder, no, uh, no snow or anything. Uh, but everything should be like a pleasant walk in the park for them. And when they find out, I think this is hard work, you know, I really have to deny myself. I have to mortify myself. I have to um, not allow myself even to entertain, the, entertain these temptations. I have to not only give up the sins, but I've got to give up the temptations and the sources of temptations. And they're too attached to them. And it's, it's too hard. And the reason is because uh, they're not willing to um, make the sacrifices necessary um, to be willing, willing to uh, even allow themselves to love God enough to do it, apparently. So they go back to the world. Remember the rich young man who came to our Lord one day? What must I do to have everlasting life? And our Lord said, well, keep the commandments, you know, and you can save your soul. You will save yourself if you keep the commandments. And the young man said, well, I, I've kept the commandments since I was a young lad. And then our Lord said, well, if you want to be perfect, then leave everything. Leave all things of the world. Come follow me. And uh, that's where he was too challenged <laughs> because he was well-to-do and he just wasn't willing to part with these things. And our Lord watched him, our Lord sadly watched him walk away, and he said, it is so difficult for those who are um, rich with the goods of the world to, you know, to actually come to everlasting life. Right? Our Lord even likened it to the <clears throat> a camel passing through the eye of a needle. <clears throat> I understand there was actually a very small entrance to the city of Jerusalem, through the walls of the city, which was actually called the Eye of the Needle. And if a camel were to, the only way a camel could possibly pass through that into the city of Jerusalem was to actually get down on its camel knees and kind of shuffle through there. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I've been told, I don't know. I've never ver verified this myself. But uh, our Lord's reference to the Eye of the Needle is pretty powerful. And our Lord also said, that, you know, the way that leads to eternal life is very narrow and difficult. And there are very few who go that way. And the way that leads to perdition is very broad and, and easy. And there are many, many who go that way. Yeah. Easy life. Looking for an easy life. Yeah. Um, there was another question, Father, that's um, maybe somewhat related. I think this is a very common question that, that uh, you get a lot. But uh, why does it seem sometimes that... Uh, those who are good, good people in the world, that they often have more to suffer, it seems, than the wicked people. Why is that the case? Uh, well, 
that's often true. You know, it's, it seems that way anyway. Um, and I think if that is indeed, indeed true, I mean, you know, there have been books written on that very subject. Uh, why do good people, uh, why do bad things happen to good people when good things happen to bad people? You know, um, just kind of check that out. Uh, Harold Kushner, I understand, wrote the When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And I think uh, Martin Tinker <laughs> authored a book, Why, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Mm -hmm. Supposedly, I got that right. Uh, but that's the age old question. The idea of evil in the world at all, uh, let alone afflicting good people, uh, is the age old question that afflicted St. Augustine, right? As a young man, even uh, the Augustine who clung to paganism, um, let's put it this way, at least when he rejected Christianity, he was plagued by that question. He was driven by that question. Um, he, he joined the academics in philosophy, looking for the answers to those questions of evil. And uh, he joined the Manichaeans for a while, looking for the answer. He thought the Manichaeans had the answer. Uh, light and darkness, good God, the bad God, struggling, bad God, getting the ascendancy over the good God, and so on. The Manichaean Gnostic idea. But it was only when he, when he joined Christianity, when he, when he actually found truly the, the Christianity of his mother, the Catholic faith of his mother, that he finally got the answer to that question. What is evil? Where does it come from? Um, why does it happen? Right. He found out sin. Um, and um, we still have that going on today. Uh, just earlier today, I was listening to a, a little program by a man who had, in his youth, become involved in all the Oriental mystical religions. He had gotten deeply into yoga and the, the so-called spiritual meaning of yoga, the Hindu idea. And uh, he'd really gotten into this, but he said he'd gotten into the, the New Age movement, which is sort of like a complexus of all of these Eastern mysticism stuff, you know, a pantheistic sort of thing. And he said, still, he couldn't understand how does evil fit in? There's one huge question that these things just don't answer, and that is, what is evil and what's it doing here? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so um, that's what ultimately led him to Christ. As he said, only Christ really has the answer to that question. What is evil? Why is it here? And how do we overcome it? And so he says he sees all of these other things as evil now. Yoga and the rest, he says, they, they are expressions of, of an evil anti-Christian spirit. And he he's not only rejects it, but he's campaigning to get people to spirit. To drop it and stop excusing it, he says. Even as far as yoga, if you you might you might consider it just to be exercise, but it's based upon false principles, philosophical and religious, and these false spiritual principles are are deadly. He says. Interesting guy, you know. He seems very sincere, honest, and uh, rather intelligent. Actually, he went through all that. This is how he resolved it all. He said, "Only Christ can resolve that." So, um, but we know that uh, 
even good people, you know, are, are people and they have human nature and human nature is a fallen nature. And so we come into the world subject to sin and we come into the world subject to evil. We come into the, a, a fallen world. We are essentially the fallen world, right? Uh, because let's face it, I mean, the, the, uh, the animals of the world did not sin against God. We are the sinners, right? Because we have that moral power to, to choose. Uh, to know God and to reject Him, and to love uh, a created good more than the Creator, which is essentially what sin is, right? So, um, so we're all subject to that that evil. If one might ask, well, why would good people who are striving to love God and be faithful, again, why would they also have to suffer evil? Um, I think we already talked about that. I think we just answered that question. Yeah. So, what? But the question is, if, why does it seem so often that the evil prosper, the bad people prosper, and why those who want to be faithful to God have to suffer? And again, I mean, we can look back to our Lord Himself. This is a supreme example of the good suffering and the evil prospering, right? Because we might say all of the bad people associated with the, the life, the public life of our Lord, the, uh, the passion of our Lord, his sacrificial death on the cross, they all seem to uh, prosper from. I mean, even Judas is 30 pieces of silver, you know. Um, they, they all seem to have something to gain from it. The satisfaction of the Jewish high priests and having their envy uh, satisfied, right? Um, even the condemnation of our Lord by, by Pilate. I mean, he had to save face with the emperor, so he's willing to sacrifice Christ in order to, you know, yeah. be on the good side, stay on the good side of the emperor. They all had something to gain and to avoid some evil afflicting them. Um, and so uh, they were all motivated by that. And someone who does not love God, but who loves the things of the world, and who serves the things of the world, is there one who promises to reward them? Satan? <laughs> There's one who promises to reward them, right? I mean, look at the temptations that he even <clears throat> inflicted on our Lord the first Sunday of Lent, right? Yeah. Change the stones into bread. Feed yourself, right? Throw yourself off the temple. Prove you're really great in God's eyes, and he's going to have his angels protect you because you're so important. Feed your ego. <laughs> I'll give you all these kingdoms. Just worship me. That's all I ask. Just worship me. Fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms, the glory of the kingdoms of the world. And this is the one who promises to reward fidelity to himself. Does he have the power to give the things of the world as reward to those who will surrender themselves to him? Well, if God permits him to. Yes, if God permits him to. And does God permit him to at times? Sure. He does. And uh, so there are those who want to basically live and die for the things of the world. And in the end, all the world has for them is probably a miserable end and a grave. And that's it. That's all the world has for them. It's got its grip on them, though, and the devil takes their soul. Okay. So, but, uh, so that's what becomes of that. But... But the devil promises all kinds of things, you know, um, for the sake of people, uh, getting people to uh, follow him. And um, he, um, 
he can deliver. People believe he can deliver. And God will allow him uh, to deliver these things for those who are actually into self-delusion, right? Um, but what does is, what is God say to those who would be faithful to him? I mean, what did our Lord promise the apostles? If they have hated me, they will hate you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Not a very good job description, right? Um, if you were to uh, place an ad for apostles and say they must be willing to suffer and be charged and die in various horrible, be tortured to death and so on, you probably wouldn't get too many people responding favorably to that. But that's essentially what our Lord was telling his apostles. This is your future. This is what is going to happen to you. But I tell you that it is a matter of love to me, for me, and I, out of uh, love for you, will reward you with everlasting life. So when our Lord asked the apostles if they also wanted to walk away with everybody else when he promised to give his body and blood as their food and drink, and Peter spoke out, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. To whom else shall, shall we go? Right? The words of everlasting life. And they believed that Christ could give that. And so uh, for that, they were willing to stay and, and hear all the things that they were going to be asked to sacrifice. Uh, when our Lord converted St. Paul, who had come to Damascus to enchain the faithful and take them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, what did, what did um, our Lord himself reveal to Ananias, the man whom he, he was sending to Paul? Right? When Ananias said, but uh, you want me to go to him, but he came to, to and, and basically imprison us. And our Lord said to him, I will show him the things he will have to suffer for my name. And so, yes, the good is their vocation. It's a, but that's what love does. I mean, every, everybody in the world who actually is motivated by love, I'm not talking about selfish self-love. I'm talking about the love that is actually the well-wishing for another, the amor benevolentiae, as the philosophers call it, wanting the good of another. So much that one has such a, an affection and a respect for another that he or she is willing to not only um, provide the good for another, but even to sacrifice themselves for the benefit, for the good of another. Satan hates that. He hates that idea, right? But one who actually has genuine love and loves our Lord like that. Every single one who has that love is going to suffer necessarily for that love. They will become victims, as it were, of that love. And so you have... Um, you have even worldlings who love worldly things. Um, and they will work themselves to the bone to get these things. And they make serious sacrifices to get the things of the world that they want. And ultimately, they will actually sell their own souls to Satan for these things. But it's out of a perverted love. Um, but the good who actually are motivated by a love 
for goodness itself in God, they also are called upon to live lives of sacrifice because of that love. But here's the thing, Tom. They love to do that. They actually, well, you know how it is. Um, there are people in the world right now whom you love so much that you sacrifice for them every day, right? Doesn't really make it easy. Although our Lord, as I say, John says, you know, um, uh, and we say in the wedding ceremony, perfect love not only makes it sacrifice easy, it makes it joyful. And so when we give a gift that we've had to work for and sacrifice for, we give a gift to someone, it makes them very happy. We, we find more joy in seeing their happiness than we lament all the effort we put into it, the sacrifice we had to make. And that's what love does. Love, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. And the, the cheerfulness of giving is a matter of, of love. So uh, for those who love God, the good people in the world, yes, they are, are going to suffer. Um, but rather than discourage them from it, they say, well, this, this sacrifice is the unmistakable uh, expression of my love. And I want to give this. It, it satisfies in me that the desire to express my love. And um, this is the way I know I do, this, I, I do it, really. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, and maybe I'm going on and on, not making much sense to you, but no, that's right. But it is, um, uh, yeah, it can, can be true that in the world, the people who do not love God and who, you know, live for the things of the world and devote their time and attention, their talents and everything to the things of the world, they, they prosper in terms of the things of the world. That's why they seem to, you know. Uh, have a happier life in some way. That they are prospering in terms of the things of the world. But how many of them who have fame and fortune wind up bitter on drugs, looking for someone to love them, desperate for someone to actually love them, and find someone that they are, themselves are capable of loving. But they but they're incapable of it because they still don't really know what genuine love is. Yeah. That love of well-wishing and sacrificing oneself. Uh, whereas the good people who suffer, whatever it might be, the persecution of the world, right? For those who don't love God, uh, they actually have something that the world cannot give. And that is peace of soul, peace of conscience. And, um, even though, yeah, they may struggle in those areas at times, you know, I think everyone does. But still, um, they would not part with that for anything in the world. Because they know it is the price they pay for their love and fidelity to God. And even though it might be hard at times, they would never let it go, you know. So uh, they really are blessed, yeah. even, even in this life. Yeah. 
It seems then that um, someone who maybe is confronted by these questions, concerned about suffering, they should um, they should devote their efforts to acquiring a, a greater love for God, so that they can hopefully get to this point where they do in fact find find suffering um, joyful. Right. They, e they should be praying for that. How how do they get how do they get to that point where they have so much love for God that it is they find it easy, even enjoyable, to suffer these things for Him? How can they get to that point? Well, obviously, I mean. You have a certain satisfaction that is not sensible. Um, the sensible devotion, like the warm feelings and so on, God gives those as a reward for those who need them. But that's for the infants. That's like the milk. Um, but as St. Paul says, I mean, the solid meat is uh, adulthood, and you don't need... Um, the candy for the baby and all the rest as an incentive to carry on. As an adult, you're able to do this and just kind of tough it out, you know, um, because you've, you've come to that point. And ultimately, um, to work toward the unitive way and to love God that much, um, that doesn't mean you're going to have that sensible feeling of the warm, fuzzy, um, cozy, you know, feeling that we all crave, actually, um, and all that comfort. But it actually is more of a matter of conviction that even if I'm here in this dungeon, or if I'm here on this cross, the dungeon, the saints, how many of them were in dungeons, right? And um, they had the conviction that they were being faithful to Christ. Our Lord himself on the cross, right, uh, was pleasing the Father, and he, he knew that. And uh, that conviction, that knowledge, that understanding he had, <clears throat> fortified him against all else, you know. I mean, he was suffering terribly. Uh, even to cry out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? You know, it's, it unveils an enormous suffering of, his, of the passions, the feelings, you know, the human feelings of Christ. But... There's a deeper, deeper conviction that comes from this is right. I'm doing this for uh, as an act, a supreme act of love, and I'm serving my greatest love. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you you read what the saints have to say who've had to suffer anything for Christ, and they they uh, talk about the heavy load they had to carry. Well, Saint Paul, you know. He talks about that, all the things he suffered for Christ, right? And um, even there, you know, he said there was an angel of Satan sent to buffet him, and he asked God three times to take that away, and God said, no, strength is made perfect in weakness. Um, my grace is enough for thee. Right? And St. Paul accepted that. Was it hard for him? Yes, of course. But in the, in the end, I mean, his, his love for God just overcame everything else, right? That was the supreme thing in his mind, being faithful to God, no matter what came. And um, you might say, well, if he had just given that up for a moment, I mean, he could have avoided so much suffering. But can you imagine the pain he would have suffered if he had failed in that? That would have, like, annihilated his very being, in a sense, like, his very person, his very identity, would have just been annihilated by that moment's betrayal, because it was his love for God 
that defined him, right? And he would have lost himself, his very identity, in giving into that. So, through all of that, St. Paul maintained his identity, his integrity as an apostle chosen by God, and one specifically chosen by God for a very unique role, right, here on earth. St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and he fulfilled that. Um, so, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, if one one can develop by the grace of God such a great love for God that he's impervious to suffering and everything is all wonderful and sweetness and life, you know, peaches and cream and so on. Quite the contrary. Uh, the more one loves God, the greater love he has, then uh, the greater and the more complete the sacrifice. And on one level, yes, there will be, there will be pain and there will be suffering, as with our Lord on the cross. But at the same time, on the much deeper level, there will be a true joy and a satisfaction that the world cannot give. Um, look, your, your, greatest, your greatest joy in the greatest moment, for example, I mean, you're a married man, a wife, you have children. The one thing that you really want to be able to say when you breathe your last is to have the conviction, I was faithful. I was faithful, right? Same here, I mean, as a priest, uh, that's one thing I would find the most consoling thought at the time if God gave me the grace at that time, my last breath, as I'm releasing my soul to God and for judgment, is to have this conviction that in spite of all the temptations of the devil and all my weaknesses and so on, I have this confession. Well, I was faithful. I was faithful. That's what St. Paul says. He says, what is greater in a minister, whether you're ministering to your family or you're ministering to the flock, right? the, the greatest thing for the minister to be able to say is be faithful, to be faithful. That's what St. Paul says. He knew that. He understood that. We have to learn that. But he knew it. And... Um, so, you know, in, in spite of all the sufferings that he underwent, um, that was the one thing that was most important to him, to be faithful to Christ. And that, that was the key that brought the greatest joy and satisfaction to his life and animated his whole life. We have to pray for that, though, you know, because we have both within us and around us, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil all militating against that. And so we need the grace of God to overcome all those enemies. And we have to pray for that. We have to beg God for the grace necessary to, to move on and do what love requires. Okay. Well, we just have to keep praying for that. Yep. Uh, Recognizing your own weakness. Yep. <clears throat> okay. Um, thank you, Father. Thank you for that. Um, there. You probably should try to answer something. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, we had some holdovers from last week. You know, yes, Father. Um, we, uh, one of our viewers wanted some more clarity on this question. If a uh, 
a coworker attacks the Catholic faith and we are unsure of how to respond to their attacks, what should we do in that situation? A little more clarity. Well, if we hear them attacking the faith and they're challenging us to respond, and we don't know what to say, I think we should tell them. Well, you know, I don't know offhand, but I know there is an answer to that. And uh, if you really, really want to know, and you're not just, you know, trying to get my goat, but you really want to know and you're interested in the truth, I'll get that answer for you. Hold that thought. Give me a little time to think about it, pray about it, consult about it, and I will get back to you. And you don't want my answer. You want the church's answer. You want Christ's answer. You want God's answer. That's the answer you're really looking for. Not just what I have to say, little old me, you know, because what does that mean to you, right? So um, I'm going to due diligence, due diligence here. I'm going to actually do the work and find out the answer and I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you what it is. Mm. And you can decide whether you accept that or not. And I, I think, again, anybody who's put on the spot like that and doesn't know what to say, they have to actually not just stand there with them all hanging open. They have to be ready to say, I'll have to think about that, but I also have to pray about it and get back to you. There's an answer. I know there is. And if you're really interested and not just, you know, trying to stir the pot, you know, or, or mm. make, you know, put me on the spot. If you really want to know the answer, I'll, I'll, I'll have that answer for you. Mm -hmm. And just be content with saying that. Yeah, I think that... Um, it's a humble thing to say. Yeah, that candidness, I think, is very powerful. I think that really, uh, it's very rare mm -hmm. to see that today where everything is so emotional and... Sure. Um, very surface level, so I think that, that could be very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I would, might even say, okay, it's a good question, you know, but there is a good answer. Mm. You can even give him credit and say, that's a good question, but there is a good answer. I know there's a good answer. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find it for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, Father, is it suitable for Catholics to address Protestant pastors by their title of pastor? Well, I mean, pastor, the word actually means shepherd. I know that they use it in kind of like a spiritual sense, you know. But really, it is a title. It's just a title. You know, Reverend so-and-so and, -so and uh, Brother Bob and so on. Uh, so I don't, I don't see any problem with calling somebody Pastor Bob, you mm -hmm. know, if that's the title that he has. Yeah. I don't think by saying that I'm conceding anything, you know, yeah. any spiritual power to him. It doesn't imply any kind of authority that, that he would have? Not in the sense that, no. no. Okay. Okay. No, I didn't see it that way. Okay. Uh, Father, this um, might be a little bit um, tougher question. What would a Catholic health care system look like? Uh, one of our viewers um, wanted to get your thoughts on that, and they asked, how can we ensure that the poor have access to health care without implementing some kind of a socialist system that we hear about so often today? Well, you know, this whole idea of government being involved in charity, it's it's the idea of all the socialists, you know. Yeah. One of the first things a totalitarian does, like a socialist communist, is shut down the church and all the works of charity of the church because the government wants to take this over. Because the government wants to take the role of God. And the government wants to handle all the justice and all the charity. Government was designed by God to um, actually secure justice, yeah. right? The church on the other hand, 
was established by our Lord Jesus Christ to um, actually not only secure justice, but also charity. When politicians begin to practice charity, they're giving your money away uh, and favoring those causes that they, they like, you know. And uh, unfortunately, it becomes very sordid. The Great Society of Lyndon B. Johnson was not a great society, and it was never intended to be. Lyndon Baines Johnson was not necessarily the paragon of charity, uh, politically speaking, right? But he made this big display about the Great Society, uh, taking care of the downtrodden. <clears throat> it's, it's such chicanery when people start talking like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the people who are aborting children by the millions appeal to the children when they want to get you to say, well, you, you're, you're ashamed of supporting my programs because they're for the children, right? If we'd only caught those children earlier, we could have, we could have uh, aborted them and uh, saved ourselves all this trouble. <laughs> you know? But uh, this, is, this is the thinking that goes on in the minds of these, of these people. But ultimately, I mean, any healthcare system um, is, I mean, is it going to be, what do we mean by, even by a system? You know, you, we talk about systems as though there's going to, we get the right, the right system and it's going to solve the problem. And systems don't solve problems. Systems are run by people. And uh, people, you know, tend to mess things up. Bureaucracy, you know, poisons everything. Uh, which is why government is, can be, uh, in individual instances, a big help, but generally speaking, can be a, really a problem, right? And oppressive. Uh, systems... When you get people locked into systems, the systems are soulless, mindless. Um, uh, there's no charity in systems, right? As such, they're just mechanical things, right? And you can be ground up by the machine. This is what the collectivists think of. If we could just find the right system, <clears throat> it'll work, you know? But they think of everything uh, in a very materialistic, mechanistic way. And it always turns into, well, if that hell purgatory on earth, you know, this is what they do. But if you had a real healthcare program, or whatever, I mean, yes, government could be involved in that, certainly, and it would be there to help. But we really need a healthcare program that is not one size fits all. Uh, the socialists use, uh, love to push this. Uh, insurance with single-payer system too, okay? They love that because I think it, um, it enables them to um, pick individuals off and decide, well, who, do, who are we going to save and who are we not going to save? But it also um, is very, very expensive. And it, again, makes everybody answerable ultimately to the government because nobody else can afford this kind of thing. Yeah, so... Ultimately, you're going to have bureaucrats in government deciding what kind of health care you are allowed to have as a privilege, not a right. Ultimately, when you're talking about the health care system, I think what you really needed was what we had at one time. You need the hospital staffed by sisters, religious sisters. There you find real charity. You know, this was not a business. The Catholic hospitals were really beautiful acts of charity. They had to be a business insofar as they had to be financially viable. 
They were supported, though, by charity. They were supported by the charitable giving, charitable giving of the Catholic donors and anybody else who, who was moved by uh, a lo- any kind of love for God or, or neighbor to contribute. But they were very, very powerful uh, expressions of the charity of the church. And the sisters who staffed those hospitals were like angels on the face of the earth. And uh, they, they saw their patients as uh, immortal souls created in the image of God. And uh, they were concerned for their bodily, but also for their spiritual welfare. And um, this is what the, the healthcare system really should be. Charity is the work of the church. And uh, the healthcare system, if it, if it is merely a matter of justice, pay what you owe, right? Bottom line, get investors, make sure they get their dividends, whatever else. It becomes heartless and, and mindless, really. And you really are just caught up in the system. Whereas if it is motivated by charity, which means if it is actually a work that is the work, a religious work, and, uh, then, and really only then can it be motivated by charity, you're going to find that it is supported by the charity of everyone. And uh, they all pitch in and sacrifice together to provide the, the, the care that mm-hmm. the people need from the wealthiest to the poorest, you know, and they're, they're all taken care of because they're all looked upon as God's children. And they're not uh, looked upon as political um, donors, you know, yeah. and what, what, can, what, what can we gain from these people? Who do we want to live and who is expendable? That's what comes out of a godless system. Why do you, uh, why do you automatically associate um, healthcare with charity? Is it intrinsically immoral to, uh, to operate a, a healthcare business? Could I open some kind of private practice and treat it like a business and, and charge a, a fair price for my services that I render and actually make a profit off of this? Would that be immoral? Well, here's the tendency, though, Tom. You turn it into a business. Bottom line matters. And the, uh, you're always trying to make your business more efficient. Yeah. And uh, inevitably, uh, mm-hmm. there are going to be uh, investments, costs that don't pay off, that are not good for your bottom line. Couldn't you say that about any business, though? Yes, you can say that about any business. But here you're dealing with human lives. And this makes it different, okay? When the people's lives and health and so on become your business, you can't just think about the bottom line, but that's the tendency of the godless. <clears throat> the bottom line, hey, these people do not contribute. They do not contribute to our bottom line. here, And so we have to uh, give them less. We have to cut back because there's, there's not a return on, on our investment here uh, with these people. And they're useless eaters, you know, the, the communist idea, you know. Yeah. So uh, we have to, uh, well, like this is what was said about Obamacare. Obamacare was the death panels, deciding who, who should die and who shouldn't be given this health care. Yeah. Um, you know, we have limited resources. This is what all the totalitarians say. Ultimately, they get this system in place. Uh, 
And then they start saying, well, we have limited resources, so we have to start rationing the health care. Mm -hmm. And as they do so, and it uh, becomes less and less efficient, more and more, shall we say, profit-oriented. And, um, you know, one might say, well, that's capitalism. No, that's no. capitalism turning into socialism, yeah. really. Um, as you concentrate the power more and more in the hands of government, that's never is going to happen. Uh, and if you go to a single, uh, single-payer system, that's inevitably what's going to happen. It's going to be concentrated in the hands of government, and government is notoriously inefficient. Mm-hmm. What, what do we do today, though, Father? This seems to be a this seems to be an impossibility today to have to return to uh, hospitals staffed by sisters. Well, I mean, there. Well, I mean, yeah, for the time being, because yeah. look what's happening in the church now. Yeah. Right. The religious sisters are out. You know, they, they, well, in my day, they were out busy pursuing their vocation by protesting nuclear power. And, and nuclear warheads and all the rest, right? They were, they'd left the schools, they'd left the hospitals, and they were out doing something, doing something relevant yeah. instead, you know. Uh, so that was that was the crime. That was the crime. Look what happened to the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters out in California. Yeah. Uh, read the account of that, and it it really is very sobering for people nowadays to see what was done to them yeah. back in the 60s and 70s and realize this was evil. That was very evil. But that's the Novus Ordo. That's the new order back there at work. Um, to make them relevant to the world, to the modern world. Boy, did they ever. Um, and this is the modern world we get. Um, that's what happens with fallen angels. Right? But in any case... Um, no, we're not necessarily going to be re- able to recreate it. To the extent that we can't recreate it, we're going to have this, and it's a mess, right? The, ultimately, we would have to recreate something like that by the grace of God in order to have what I would consider an actual viable healthcare program, not just system, but a program of people who actually care. You know? yeah. um, but um, in any case, there are... Groups that have come together and formed a kind of consortium almost, like a, like a sharing responsibility where they all pay in and they all benefit. And they're all considered to be more like shareholders in this uh, insurance, I don't know what you, there's a, what, what do they call that? There's health, a, health sharing program? Health sharing program, I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And there are some very viable health sharing programs yeah. that are um, that are active. Uh, many of our people have actually signed up with those, and they're, they're benefiting. But I think you're going to find that as people get in place who might be promoted into positions of power in these health-sharing programs, and they start thinking in terms of the bottom line, they're going to start leaving people out. They're going to start denying people yeah. claims and care. Because now... We have to, um, you know, look out for the the big guys here. Unfortunately, we're all tribal. By nature, quality of nature, it's all tribes. Now you might say, well, I can see, yes, as I look around the world, I mean, there's a man named, I think his name was Edward Glass, who was taken 
He was a journalist who was taken prisoner by the Muslims and being held captive by them. And he wrote a book about it afterwards. Uh, some group of Muslim radicals decided to seize him and imprison him and hold him for whatever political purposes they had. His book uh, about this ordeal was called <coughs> Tribes with Flags. And his point was, they may call themselves nations, but they're just tribes of people. And this is how they act, like tribes, warring with the other tribes, incessantly, you know, even, even the members of the tribes themselves. Their identity, their rights are determined by the tribe. Not from God, but the tribe determines what they're worth and how they fit or don't fit into the tribe, whether they should live or die, you know. Uh, the tribe is, is the, uh, the collective for each one of them. And uh, the, the, that was the interesting thing about America. The United States of America was not, it was, it was, the idea was to overcome that tribalism and, and have this kind of mix, you know. But the liberals want to reinstate the tribalistic America. They want to make America forcibly tribalistic and turn all of these tribes <clears throat> against each other. You know, so we have the community of this, the community of that, we got that community and this community, and they're all fighting with each other, like tribes, you know. This is what liberals do, divide and conquer. That's what Satan does. That's how he tears a nation to pieces. And um, so um, as soon as you get that native tribalism going in these companies and so on, where they're looking out for the big guys and their friends and so on, they're going to start sacrificing people. And this is what's going to happen. Unfortunately, if uh, the only, you know, where worldliness sits in and you get worldly people who are making the decisions. But the only thing that can possibly safeguard any organization against that is where you have people who are motivated by faith, hope, and charity, and they don't lose sight of that. And uh, they don't succumb to this worldly <clears throat> temptation to the, the, the bottom line is, is all, you know, everything must be sacrificed to the bottom line. And when you get into government, you get into bureaucracy and so on. That's what it's all about, basically. My job, my position, and just rubber stamping, whatever, you know. Yeah. The, uh, it, it's not about really who needs what so much as what I need, you know. Uh, to get through the day. So I'm perhaps I'm just belaboring the point here, but I really do think that one has to um, restore uh, the health care of the people to the religious entities uh, who really care about them. And right now, because of the, I, I, I mean, I would say the Catholic Church was, was uh, premier in that. Okay. And... Um, Right now, because of the modernists and the damage they've done, it's hard to imagine how that could happen. Obviously, it'll have to take it, take the grace of God to make a great restoration. Yeah. Well, we'll pray for so, that, Father. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, Father, we're we're out of time, but I, I just really wanted to ask this last um great we had a very practical short question about Lent. Um, one of our viewers uh, asked about during, during Lent when they're observing the, uh, the abstinence, um, eating meat only with their main meal, <clears throat> and no meat at all on Fridays. 
Uh, they asked if it would be permissible to fry fish and pork lard. Fry fish and pork lard. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an interesting question because uh, initially I would have said no. Uh, because pork lard is part of the body of the pork. <laughs> and, um, you know, moral theologians have said you can't use the, the fat, the veins, the heart, the, or, well, the organs, of, uh, or the muscle, uh, anything part of the body of an animal, uh, a mammal, is considered to be <clears throat> meat, right? And would break the abstinence. You can eat alligator, uh, you can eat steak, right? You frogs, frogs legs, things that are not mammals, uh, and that would not break the uh, prohibition against meat, which is basically coming down to the flesh of a mammal. Mm -hmm. um, but there are theologians, and some of them, who are actually even reputed to be, um, uh, you know, strict, yeah, not laxes who actually um, have some exception to that. In fact, we have a book by uh, Father Herbert Joan here. Many of our people would be familiar with this, and this is his, uh, you know, manual in English. And uh, now, see if you can follow this here, Tom. Let's see if I can read this with my poor eyesight here. But here's what he says. Uh, that uh, the law of abstinence, he says, the prohibition extends only to the flesh of mammals and birds, including the fat, blood, marrow, brains, heart, liver, etc. Now, when you talk about um, the lard, I mean, assume you're talking about the fat, right? But he goes on here. He says, lawful food, foods are fish, frogs, turtles, snails, mussels, clams, oysters, crabs, etc., as seasoning, one may use rendered lard, not only to prepare food, but also as a spread. And um, I thought, well, it, in reading that, I, I asked myself, well, was that a contradiction against what he said? The, the first thing he lists that it includes prohibited was the fat. And I guess the lard is the fat. Right, and the fat is the lard. That's <laughs> my understanding. But... <laughs> so is what I've been told. So, but he says you can use rendered lard <clears throat> as a seasoning, and even as a spread. For example, on bread, like in the place of butter or something like that. He says likewise, lawful are margarine and meat extracts that have lost the taste of meat or broth. For example, he says that gelatin. Which again, I mean, would be something that actually comes from the body of a mammal, right? But he says that would be okay because it's lost the character of uh, flesh. Uh, he says, likewise, gelatine products of animal origin, but not soup cubes that contain meat ingredients. <clears throat> so if we can interpret this in a way that, you know, makes sense, the rendered, rendered lard is strained. It's strained of any solids, and what comes out is basically a, a liquid, okay? When it cools, it forms a kind of uh, buttery substance, right? Like a, um, almost like a paste, but any meat solids have been removed from it. So rendered lard, it says that would not be 
uh, in violation of the abstinence. So based upon what is asked here, I'd have to say, since there is an approved, an approved moral theologian who says that this would be um, acceptable, and I'm sure he's not alone, that, um, that one could use rendered lard that has been strained and is pure uh, pork lard. One could use it to fry fish. Uh, I would say, though, it would be more in the spirit of the abstinence, though, to use something else. I couldn't recommend seed oils because even the Cleveland Clinic has come out now and asked the question out loud, are seed oils toxic? And the answer was yes, even the Cleveland Clinic has said seed oils can cause inflammation of the body and diseases. That's pretty serious. So we now realize that the seed oil that is being almost ubiquitous now because it is so easily obtained and so cheap, right, and so profitable, that has uh, been foisted upon uh, the peoples of the world um, um, by the food industry uh, at the expense of butter and lard and so on, that now these things are considered to be actually very healthy. And um, my goodness, I was just reading that uh, uh, lard is actually listed as one of the 100 most nutritious uh, foods now, um, far from being unhealthy. And these seed oils are now considered, well, as I mentioned, in some areas, actually toxins. So, um, so if I'm saying, you know, well, I still think it'd be within the, you know, more in the spirit of Lent to observe the abstinence by not frying foods, even legitimate foods like fish, in in uh, pork lard. Uh, I could not recommend seed oils, right? But there are others like olive oil and so on uh, that could be used. And I think that'd be more in the spirit of the abstinence of Lent to do that. I see why one would one would not do that. One, but why would one choose a pork lard instead, yeah. unless <clears throat> they were using it, let's say, because of the flavor? Uh, they liked the flavor of the meat or someone. But even there, he says as a seasoning, which would seem to indicate that it would still yeah, have some, meat. Yeah, some, uh, some meat flavor. So um, I, I must admit, I'm a little flummoxed by, <laughs> by this. Um, but he does say, state very clearly that uh, rendered lard, pork lard, would not uh, violate the abstinence. So if Herbert Jones says, it's okay, and this is approved by the church, his moral theology, uh, as you know, the, the book itself um, have been approved as not violating Catholic faith or principles, um, then it's safe to go by what he writes there. All right. Uh, thank you, Father. That was a lot um, that we covered then, tonight. Very good. Any well, I mean, you, you say you, you wanted to ask that question. Yeah, uh, but you know it's not a twenty-five yeah, word. Yeah. <laughs> As it turns out, it's not yeah. a yes or no question. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's that's good. Um, okay. Anything in closing? Very briefly, Father. Just uh, be be strong. <clears throat> keep the Lent. Keep the Lenten fast. Keep the Lenten abstinence. Uh, be brave. It's not a hardship. It's just an inconvenience. 
If you're not hungry, you're not fasting, right? So that doesn't mean you're hungry all the time. But if you go through the entire day without experiencing the, what it feels to be hungry, then you're probably not fasting that day. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> try to make, <clears throat> make a point of that anyway. If you're not hungry by the time you, it's time for the next meal, well, again, you may not be fasting in terms of the quantity of food that you're taking in. But uh, tomorrow we have the feast of St. Gabriel of the Sorrowful Mother. And, um, you know, it, it, the sanctity of this, of this young man was, uh, well, remarkable. He um, was devoted to our Blessed Lady of Sorrows, you know, and so his life was, again, a life of penance, too. But he was, he was not a plastic saint in the sense that he, as, as people like to sort of render the, the saints as though their feet never touched the ground. And that's not fair to them or to us. Um, in fact, St. Uh, Gabriel of Miller was, was an expert marksman. Um, there are gun clubs that are devoted to him and named after him, which drives the new order somewhat you know, to make them apoplectic, you know, because, again, they've fallen into this idea that guns are evil. Uh, guns are simply instruments, you know, in the right hands they can do good, in the wrong hands they can do evil. But uh, St. Gabriel the Sorrowful Mother did not see guns as evil, and he did not use them for evil uh, things. Uh, one day his superior actually sent him on a mission. He told him to strap on the, on the guns, and go to, to a nearby village because it had been taken over by bandits. And bandits were terrorizing the people of the village. And there was no one who was capable of stopping them until St. Gabriel and the Seraphim Mother arrived. And he uh, basically put them in their place and drove them out of town. Uh, they just didn't want to tangle with him. And so there he performed quite a service to God. He obeyed his superior, who had the wisdom to say, okay, um, we need to, uh, uh, we can start by politely asking the bandits to leave and stop terrorizing the people, but if they don't, well, we might have to uh, give them other incentives <laughs> to leave. So uh, that's what St. Gabriel of Seraphim had done. So in that sense, he's um, a saint for our times too now, because uh, he, he understood that God's creation, our technology, can be used for good, can be used for evil, but the good or the evil actually stems from the human heart, the human mind, the human soul. And uh, our Lord came to uh, enable us to put away the evil and uh, turn from evil and do good, as the saying is, and that's what we are doing during Lent, turning from evil and doing good. Very good. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.